Well, I think we understand what the theme of today is, the spiritual blessings that we have as part of God's family. You know, as we think about the particular um, book that we're going to start this, uh, this day, today we begin our study in Ephesians. And while we'll have a few breaks here and there for Easter and other times when we'll take a break, we'll be in this letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus through August. Okay, so we're going to dig in, but we're going to take it in bite-sized pieces. And uh, the book of Ephesians is a powerful, powerful letter from the Apostle Paul. And uh, many have asked me, why Ephesians, Randy? Why are you starting uh, by studying in the book of Ephesians? Well, I would argue that this is the quintessential letter that Paul wrote that teaches us what we believe and then how we are to behave based on that belief. In fact, the book of Ephesians is broken up nicely into two parts. Chapters 1 through 3 is Paul's gospel presentation of what we believe. And then beginning in chapter 4 through chapter 6, it's how we as the church of Jesus Christ are to live and engage our community for him. And so that's why we have Ephesians here. So if you uh, are able and you can stand, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're going to begin Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 10. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. Let us pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this tender letter by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus. But Lord, it speaks to the modern church today in 2023. As we stood and read these words, Lord, I pray that each person in this room, representatives of this local body called Ashley River Baptist Church, might take these words to heart, might ponder on the spiritual blessings that we have in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So as we think about Ephesians, 
uh, we have to first understand the context of why this book was written, why this letter was written by Paul. Paul, on his missionary journeys, would go and plant churches throughout Asia Minor, and uh, one of them was in Ephesus. The background for Paul's time in Ephesus is found in Acts chapter 19 and 20. It's briefly mentioned in chapter 18 because Paul did spend a couple of weeks there in about 53 AD. But then he spent two full years in Ephesus between the years of 57 and 59 AD. And so therefore, he is writing now in approximately the year of 62 AD from a Roman prison. And he is in a Roman prison because he, of course, has appealed to Caesar for the charges against him. And he is waiting his trial, and he is in a Roman prison, and he writes back to this church that he had established, that he had developed and had invested in for so many years. And so Paul here is writing to this church, and of course it says here, Paul, an apostle, an appointed one, by Christ Jesus Christ, by Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints, to the holy ones in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. So it's important for us to understand that he is writing to believers. He is writing to those who are already in Christ. And then he says, grace and peace to you from God, our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Ephesus, if you see up here on the screen, I've got it circled with the big red circle. And Ephesus is on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. And it was a populous city. It was a metropolis. It was very popular. And because of that, the, the church in Ephesus was obviously very important for Paul to establish in the truth. But it was also a pagan city. In fact, the Roman goddess uh, Diana or Artemis, Artemis is the Greek name, Diana is the Roman name for the goddess, the goddess of the moon. They had erected a shrine, a temple to Artemis in this very city. And that was the central religious shrine for that city. And here comes Paul talking about one certainly greater than a mythological god, Artemis, the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so if you think about this letter, we have to think about what is repetitive. In my Bible studies, I always ask people, how do you determine what the purpose of a letter is? Or what's the central theme? And as we walk through the six chapters of Ephesus, we will find the phrase, in Christ or in him, repeated 27 times. 27 times Paul refers to being in Christ. And so it makes no, uh, it's not hard for us to see that the title of this series is Ephesians United in Christ. And so we're going to look at that. If you look down at verse 18, we may find what many believe is the purpose of the letter. I always tell my classes, look for the purpose of the letter. In our youth department, uh, we had a, a young man who actually mentioned the, uh, the purpose of John's letter. That all of these miracles that Jesus performed would invoke people to believe in him and have life eternal. And here in Ephesians verse 18, it says this, I pray also that the eyes of your heart 
may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. So this is a hopeful letter. It is a letter where Paul is looking forward. And so therefore, this is where Ephesus is, the modern-day Turkey western coast off the Aegean Sea. And Paul writes to this church about being in Christ. Now, before we begin, I want us to understand that there are two terms that are used in these verses that I read this morning that are very debated terms, heavily debated terms within the church. And they are chosen and predestined. How many of you ever had a conversation about what it means to be chosen or predestined? Many of us have. I hope that this morning we will be able to unpack the true meaning of those two terms and what they are meant to imply by Paul the Apostle. So the two rules that we must use, number one, don't bring any bias or presuppositions to the text. That is important because, as we all know, we read various commentators, we, we listen to various preachers, we listen to various podcasts, but none of them, and I mean none of them, is the Word of God. Amen? Amen. This is the Word of God, so we are going to read it afresh this morning, having put our agenda, our biases, our preconceptions to the side, and we're going to look at exactly what the text says, and that will be our instructor. Number two, and this is very important, two opposing viewpoints does not necessarily mean one of them must be true. And I would argue that I do not have one of the two primary viewpoints on those two terms, chosen and election. And so I'm warning you this morning, I'm going to come at this from a whole different angle. Okay? And so let's dig in. The first spiritual blessing we see, it's not hard, in verse 4. See, in verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. And so the first one is in verse 4. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. So that's the first spiritual blessing. That we, the church, those in Christ, will be holy and blameless in God's sight. So when did God make this decision? Before the foundation of the world. Before the creation of the world. But the more important question is, what decision did God make? That everyone who is in Christ, what does it say? To be what? Holy and blameless. That if you are in Christ... Before God, you are now holy and blameless. This, of course, is what he determined before the foundation of the world. That everyone who is in Christ will be holy and blameless. Why? Because God is holy, and therefore he cannot dwell. He cannot commune with unholy people. Therefore, all of his children, his family, will be holy and blameless in his sight. But then the question is, did God determine who would be saved and who would be lost before the creation of the world? No. The word salvation is not in this verse. 
The word salvation doesn't occur until verse 13. No, this particular demonstration or determination by God is that every single believer will be holy and blameless in his sight. Now, the word chosen in the Greek is eklegomai, eklegomai, and it occurs 35 times in the New Testament. And guess what? I've done some study. I've gone and looked at every single time that the word chosen occurs in the Greek New Testament. And in every single case, it refers to God's appointment of a person or a group of people for a specific purpose in his divine plan. If chosen refers to salvation, then why is Jesus called the chosen one of God? Jesus didn't need to be saved, no, but he had a purpose, and his purpose was to come and to save all mankind by the shedding of his blood on the cross. And so we have to ask ourselves the question then, what about Israel? Israel was chosen, were they not? God said, I have chosen you, you're a chosen people, You're you're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. I have chosen you. But all of us in this room, as we read the Old Testament, we know that Israel was not all saved. Therefore, what did they choose? What did God choose them for? He chose them to be a light to the world. That's what his choosing was. Look at the Apostle Paul. When he radically transformed Paul on the road to Damascus. Ananias comes to Paul and God tells Ananias to let Paul know what his choosing is. He said, Paul is my chosen instrument to the Gentiles. That is who Paul's, that's what his purpose was, to be the chosen instrument of God to share the gospel with the Gentile world and the church. All of us who are part of the universal church of Jesus Christ, we are chosen by God to go and be a light to the world, to share the gospel, to demonstrate service and love to a world that so desperately needs hope. So the Apostle Paul, Jesus, the Old Testament Israelite nation, and the church are all chosen but they were chosen for a divine purpose in the plan and will of God. And when was that decided? From the foundation of the world. So therefore, this verse refers to that our first spiritual blessing in Christ is that we will be holy and blameless before him. The second one is down in verse 5. Look at what it says. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Okay, that makes sense. He has predestined us to be adopted as sons. So what does the word predestined mean? The word is in the Greek proorizo. Proorizo, which literally means to determine beforehand. This word occurs six times in the New Testament. Six times. Four times in relationship to the process of salvation. Now some connect this particular verse 5 with the previous verse, verse 4, which I think is an error. Look at what some have said. For example, John Calvin to which much of the predestination theology comes. He was a reformer in the 1600s. 
He got a lot of his theology from Augustine of Hippo in the 5th century AD. But John Calvin is quoted as saying this in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. All are not created on equal terms. I'll pause there and just say, I already have a problem with his statement. Because we are all created in the image of God. We are all created in the image of God. God is no respecter of persons. But Calvin here seems to imply this. Then he goes on to say, but some are preordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. And accordingly, as each has been created for one or other of those ends, we say that he has been predestined to life or death. In other words, what Calvin is basically saying is that before the foundation of the world, God decided who would be saved and who would be lost. Now this is a very difficult interpretation to square with the remainder of Scripture and the character of God. And so I fully discount that whole theological system. You know, it's interesting, I've never met a person who is a self-professing Calvinist who themselves is not one of the elect. You know, they're always saved. It's ne I've never met one that says, I believe in this doctrine, I just happen to not be one of the elect. None of them. They are all saved. It's amazing to me. But then there was a follower of Calvin towards the end of his life who actually ascribed to the Calvinistic doctrine that God has chosen who would be saved and who would be damned before the foundation of the world. And then he came to his... Uh, came to a different conclusion and said, no, that can't be true. And his name was Jacob Arminius. And so Arminius actually comes up with an alternative idea or explanation. And this is what he had to say. God decreed to save and damn certain per particular persons. You understand the premise that he is beginning with is already flawed. It's the same premise as Calvin. But he says he's determined or decreed to save and damn certain particular persons. This decree has its foundation, however, in the foreknowledge of God, by which he knew from all eternity those who would believe and persevere, and by which foreknowledge he likewise knew who would believe and persevere. You see, now what Arminius is saying is that while God didn't determine it, he, deter he did determine it, but his determination was based on his foreknowledge of you in 2018, 2012, 2005, whenever you came to Christ, whenever you trusted in Christ. God saw that because God can see all of history at one time, and therefore God looks down through the corridors of time. He sees who will be saved, and then he determines up front that you will be saved or lost because you may, not, you may have rejected the gospel. You see, but both of these viewpoints are flawed. Both of them don't square with the rest of Scripture. So let me offer an alternative interpretation of this word predestined. And we're going to dig into it very deeply here. So what does it mean to be predestined? Verse 5 very clearly reads, For he, uh, for he predestined us to be what? Adopted as his sons. You see, it has nothing to do with salvation. It means that we will be adopted into his family. Understand something. 
The word salvation in the Greek, soterios and sozo, are both the overarching plan of God's redemption of his people. But salvation is a process and has so many elements associated with it, one of which is the adoption process. Okay, so we're going to walk through the process of salvation later on, but understand that one step in that process is the adoption process. When you come to Christ, when you trust in him, when you receive him, lots of things happen from God's point of view, what he does for you. One of which he spiritually adopts you into his family. We learn more about this in Paul's other letter, Romans. In Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 23, it says this, The spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. You see, the adoption is still future. Paul is writing to the Romans, and he is saying this adoption is future. So we see there is a spirit adoption that when you first trust Christ, you get the spirit of adoption, and then later in life, you get the physical adoption into his family. Paul addresses this in Galatians chapter 3 in great detail about how some are slaves and some are sons. How you become a son, you become an heir. You become an heir to the, to the throne of God, to the inheritance of God. But you don't receive it right away. It, you have to become old enough in order to be entered into full adoption. This is the concept of the New Testament. In verse 11, let's look at it first because it's the second time of the four times that predestined occurs. And it says in verse 11, in him we were also made heirs, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with his purpose of, with the purpose of his will. And so we see here the second way in which we are predestined or the second blessing we receive, and that is we are made heirs. We will receive an inheritance. Have you received it yet? No, but you will in the future that we're predestined for that. And in Romans chapter 8, towards the end, it says in verses 30 and 31, we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Have you been conformed yet? No, but you will be. You will be conformed to the image of Christ. And that's supported by Paul in his other letter to the Philippians. What does he say there in verses 20 and 21? And we wait eagerly a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. You see, we will become like Christ because we will be in him. Therefore, every time the word predestined is used, and of course it's just repeated in verse 31 of Romans uh, as kind of having been predestined, the idea is that predestination is not, it is not God from the foundation of the world determining who will be saved. But instead, it is God 
predestining those who are saved to future blessings. When you come to Christ, you are now predestined to be adopted as sons, to be made an heir and a joint heir of Christ, and to be conformed to the image of Almighty God, to Jesus Christ himself. You see, and that's what this particular verse means. Now, if I would say, how does this square with the rest of Scripture? Let's read some of them. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. You see, belief has to happen. Before the foundation of the world, you didn't exist. So how does this work? It doesn't work. It is a flawed theology. John 3.36 says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life. You see, we have the, we have the freedom to reject Jesus Christ. And he says, if the, For those who reject the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. In John 1, chapter, chapter 1, verse 12, it says this, His own did not receive him, yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There's that adoption language again. In Romans 10, it says, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, this is good and pleases God our Savior, who wants all people to be saved. I, let me ask you a question. If God already predetermined it, then he didn't want all people to be saved. You see? But he does, because he's given us the freedom to either receive or reject the offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ, his Son. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. And then in 2 Peter 3, 9, we read these words. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. This is the heart of God. I could hand you a million dollars, but you have to receive it. God has given you spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. You have to receive it. That's not an act, a, a work, a deed. Over and over and over again in the scriptures and even in Ephesians and, of course, in Romans and Galatians, it talks about the difference between works and faith. No, Having faith is not a work. Faith is you receiving the free gift of God in Jesus Christ. So when you trusted Jesus Christ, God predestined you to be adopted as his son or daughter. He predestined you to be made an heir to his kingdom, to receive an inheritance, to be a joint heir with his son Jesus Christ. And he predestined you to be conformed to the image of Christ. And so now we see the first two blessings. And now we look at the third blessing. The third blessing is very clearly, we read it, it was our memory verse today. Verse 7, 
In him, Christ that is, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on all of us with wisdom and understanding. And so we are redeemed. How are we redeemed? Through his blood. And what does that mean? That we are forgiven. We are forgiven. Forgiveness is one of those hallmark understandings of the Christian faith that really separates it from every other world religion. That we can be forgiven. The debt. The word redeemed literally means to be bought back. To be bought back. You are a slave to sin. And God, through the finished work of Christ on the cross, bought you back. He purchased you. You're the purchased possession, as it says in Corinthians. And because you've been bought back, then you are now his. And you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And because you're a a son or a daughter, then you are in the family of God. Say to yourself right now, I am glad that I am in the family of God. Amen. You're brought back. Look at what it says in verse 14 of this same chapter. It says that the Holy Spirit is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This redemption has its earmark in the time, the moment which you received Christ, but it has its fulfillment in the final measure of God's judgment. You will be redeemed. And look over in Romans, if you don't mind, Romans chapter 3, and I'll spend just a minute there. But Romans chapter 3 really articulates all of these elements of salvation beautifully. We'll begin in verse 23. Verses 23 through 28, I'll read it. For all have sinned, all have sinned, and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. You remember I I said faith and works are not the same. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law. So this redemption plan that God has is that he will declare us not guilty. He doesn't declare us innocent because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But what he has done is he has declared us not guilty. That is what justification is. He has justified us. Now turn back to Ephesians. And we remember that this blood that was shed had to be shed. In Hebrews, we learn this truth. Without the shedding of blood, there is 
no forgiveness of sin. And so God himself had to take on the penalty for our sin by dying on a cross, shedding his blood so that we might be made righteous in God's sight. The imputed righteousness of Christ is given to all who trust in him. And so we are redeemed. We're not only uh, destined to be holy and blameless in God's sight. We're not only predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters. We're not only redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, but then finally we are enlightened to the mystery of his will. We're enlightened to the mystery of his will. Look at what it says there in verse 9. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, Jesus Christ. You see, and that's the plan and purpose of God from the foundation of the world, that Jesus would be the preeminent one. He is the chief cornerstone, and he is also the capstone of the building of God. In verse 18, I talked about how that's the central verse or the purpose verse of this letter. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be what? Enlightened. Well, what does it mean to be enlightened? Well, we have in our Bibles what's called the keep reading principle. If you keep reading, you will learn the mystery of God's will. Guess where we find it? We find it in chapter 3, verse 6. Let's all look there. Chapter 3, verse 6. This mystery is through the gospel the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. That's the mystery. That the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers together in the promise of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. What a savior. He's the savior of the whole world. If you think about it, God had this in mind when he called Abram out of Ur and told him, I'm going to show you a new land. He said, all nations will be blessed through you. The word nations is where we get the word Gentile. And it's interesting, all pe isn't it great that God didn't come just for the Israelite people? All of us would be hopeless and lost. But praise God, he loves all people. He loves everyone. And he wants everyone to be a part of his family. That's why he created us. He wants us to praise and glorify him forever and ever and ever. This is exactly what the gospel is. And I'm here to tell you that these are spiritual blessings that the church in Ephesus is looking forward to. It are that these are the spiritual blessings that all of us are looking forward to. One of the main motifs of scripture is this, is that we are living in this life, in this sinful, very decaying world that we live in. But we have hope that this life is not the end. It is a preparation, it is a dress rehearsal for the glorious future for all of us who are in Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This mystery has now been made known to us. It's not a secret. 
There is nobody that you can't go share the gospel with. Your job is to go share the gospel in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Acts. Jesus, in various ways, tells us the great co-mission. It's a co-mission, meaning he's on mission and he wants us, the church, to be a part of that mission with him. Will you go and tell people of the glorious news that Jesus Christ saves? So then, we see that believers in Jesus Christ will be holy and blameless, that we will be adopted as sons and daughters, that we are redeemed through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, and that we are enlightened to the mystery of his will. Those four spiritual blessings begin our study in Ephesus. The process of salvation, as I mentioned, has many elements. And so now let's put it all together. There's a timeline here. It goes from eternity past to eternity future. The first aspect of it is that we, God's divine plan before the creation, is that all who are in Christ will be holy and blameless in his sight. That's what God determined. That was what he chose. He said, I'm going to create a family and all of them will be holy and blameless in my sight. And then time comes along and then you're born. You see, your mom had you. You were just a concept in the parent's mind. And you were born physically. We were all born physically. And we had that physical birth, but we were all created in the image of Almighty God. And we all were endowed with a conscience. Romans 2 and many other passages like it talk about how we have a moral code written on our heart. We understand right from wrong. This is God's grace to us that he gives us these things. And then through life, as we walk this road called life, many things happen. First of all, the Holy Spirit. God, Jesus says this that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit convicted your heart. The Holy Spirit came to you and said, you are not living in a way that pleases God. You need something other than your own works. You need something other than your own effort. The Holy Spirit works. God also uses the Word of God, the Gospel presentation. It's called the Gospel Call. All of us, when we meet with a friend, we should talk to them about the good news, the gospel. And then God uses life circumstances. How many of us have gotten to the end of our rope? To the end of our rope. I recently just heard a testimony about someone who said, I know that my life was not accounting for anything. I knew that there was more. There was something else. Solomon said, God has set eternity in the hearts of men. And so we want something else. And so God uses all of that to draw us into his family. And then there's a moment. There's a moment of conversion. There's a moment when you repent of your sin and you believe. You believe that Jesus is who he said he was. 
You believe the gospel. You believe that he himself was born of a virgin woman, that he lived a sinless life, that he preached the kingdom of God, that he was crucified, and on the third day he was raised, and that he was ascended 40 days later. He is now at the right hand of God, and guess what? He is coming again to gather you back to him. That's the promise of John 14. All of us are looking forward to that day when we will, as, as the choir sang this morning, we're, we're going to no longer thirst, we're going to no longer be hungry. Why? Because we will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb. That is the power of the gospel. And so this conversion, this repentance and faith, believing in Jesus Christ, then what happens when you come to the cross? Several things happen for you. The first is that you are immediately regenerated. You're regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And he indwells you. He comes to live inside of you. He becomes your guide. He becomes your comforter. He becomes your convictor. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. He is, a, as it says in verse 14, a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He also gifts you. He's also the one who wrote the word, which is why when you read the word, the Holy Spirit in you is bearing testimony to the truth of this word. You see? And the Holy Spirit comes in and lives with you. You are also justified. You're declared not guilty. And then thirdly, you are adopted spiritually into the family of God. All those things happen at the moment you were converted, at the moment you received Jesus Christ. You're now his. He's got you in the palm of his hand. Nothing can take that away from you. And so then, you are predestined. This is where predestination begins, at the moment of conversion. You're predestined for what three things? You're predestined to be adopted as sons and daughters. You are predestined to receive an inheritance. And you are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. That's when predestination begins. It doesn't begin at the foundation of the world. It begins at the moment of conversion. This squares with the rest of Scripture. And that predestination is what Paul's talking about. That's why he's saying, this is good news, folks. The spiritual blessings we have in Christ is great news. There's something in store for you and me. We wait eagerly for it, he says. And then, of course, we then, for the rest of our earthly life, we live in Christ. Do we cease to sin? No. We still fall, we still stumble, we still struggle, we still have sin in our lives, we still have disease and sickness and even death. But in the process of walking our life, God is molding us, shaping us, sanctifying us, setting us apart for his work to be the chosen people of God to bring the good news to the world, to be a light to the world to sanctify us. And of course, then we are, we, we pre, we're preserved, the eternal security of the believer. We're all saved by God's grace. He's not going to take that away from you. If you're genuine, if you genuinely trusted Christ, you're his. And what he wants for you is to live the full and abundant life in him. And then, of course, you die, all of us. Just as we were physically born, we will physically die. And here's the truth of it. None of us knows when. None of us knows when we will die. But those who are in Christ, at the moment 
that you die, your spirit goes to God. Paul said, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so that's the promise. Our spirit will go to heaven. But there's coming a day when Jesus will come again. And when he comes again, then all of those who are in Christ will be glorified. We will be like Christ. We will have this new body. First Corinthians chapter 15 tells us the imperishable will give way. I mean, the perishable will give way to the imperishable. The mortal will give away to the immortal. Your body will be transformed in the twinkling of an eye. And it will rise to meet your spirit in the air. And then you will ever be with the Lord. This is the truth of the gospel. Salvation is a process. It begins in God's mind and his divine plan from the foundation of the world that every single person in his family will be holy and blameless. I am convinced and I am persuaded that this is the rendering of verses 1 through 10, these four spiritual blessings we have in Jesus Christ. Today, today, go home. Think about it. Reread it. And praise God for the spiritual blessings we have in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ.